The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. This is a good deal, this is a strong deal and most importantly, this is the right deal for Europe right now. Breakthrough in Brussels. EU leaders finally agreeing on a record recovery package following marathon talks as boosted rebates and a lowered 390 billion euros in grants helped sway the frugal four. We've spent four long days and nights negotiating, more than 90 hours, but it was worth it. This agreement is a signal that Europe has the capacity to act. Good morning, everybody. UBS posting a higher than expected second quarter number here. Uh, the bank delivering uh, 1.58 billion pre-tax profit, but that net profit number uh, at 1.23 billion falls 11%. The Swiss banking giant says it expects expenses to be lower in Q3 while it benefits from higher market activity levels. A big tech comes back adding $290 billion in market value as Amazon has its best day since 2018, helping the Nasdaq gain 2.5% and outperform other averages once again. And shares in IBM rally in extended trading after the computing giant beats estimates in the second quarter and says the strong performance of its cloud business will continue. All right, what's the most important sector for you at the moment? Not big tech. It's got to be pharmaceutical, isn't it? And the developments that are happening in the COVID world. Because unless we get a platform in terms of technology which helps us cope better with COVID-19, surely we don't have a platform for the rest of the economy. Anyway, we can debate that time and time again. Let's get to Novartis, one of the most important pharmaceutical companies in Europe. Shares down 10% year to date, not having uh, the same oscillation as some of their peers. Uh, But we have got the uh, first half numbers now. EPS rose 3 to 1.77 US dollars. They're saying due to COVID-19, first half results are more representative of underlying performance than the second quarter. Sales growth of 6%, uh, operating income growth of 19% as well. Net sales in the second quarter from continuing operations declined 1%, largely reversing the forward purchasing from Q1. Do you remember the company was talking about earlier the stockpiling of drugs, the concerns that people would run out on a whole host of treatments, not just, of course, uh, for treating COVID-19 and the respiratory illnesses associated with that. So they were stockpiling. Uh, and as the company said back, I think it was 28th of April, uh, Baz Narasimhan said, uh, we don't expect this trend to continue so much. And exactly that is what's happened as well. Uh, Sandoz Biopharmaceuticals grew 19% with double-digit growth in both the EU and the US. COVID-19, though, negatively impacting demand, especially in Lucentis and mature ophthalmology. Get that one out first thing in the morning. Approximately $3.3 billion as well. New patient starts in dermatology and Sandoz retail. Of course, there was a concern with the obsession globally, and perhaps rightly so with COVID-19 and coronavirus, what was denting uh, some of the appetite for other products because uh, 
treatments were being delayed. People weren't getting to hospital. People weren't having their operations as much as well. A um, couple quick more flashes before I rush on to uh, UBS and Jeff waiting in the wings. Uh, during the second quarter, COVID-19 had an impact on our business with forward purchasing from largely from Q1 largely reversing. Uh, we said that. Uh, despite this, our operations remain stable with record high customer service levels. I'm going to do one more. Our product portfolio remains resilient despite COVID-19 negatively impacting sales in April and May. And we're going to hear from the man himself, the CEO of Novartis, Vaz Narasimhan, uh, will be joining us first on interview coming up later. That interview, 8.15 with Jeff, myself and uh, Juliana, 8.15 CET. Right, let's get to Jeff, who's going to be taking a look at these UBS numbers. A whole host of figures coming out uh, from one of the most important uh, investment banks still left in Europe, down 7.9% year to date. But Jeff, what's caught your eye? Good morning, my friend. First time we've spoken for a while. Yeah, very good. Yeah, it has been a while, hasn't it? A couple of weeks off to recharge the batteries. So I'm raring to go this morning. The the UBS numbers, so there are a couple of things that we should say at a headline level here is one, that I don't think these quite match the expectations given what we saw in the US bank earnings. Uh, particularly when you drill down into these numbers and look at the operating number, and the operating number, I think, down about 2% here, which included, of course, a $272 million credit loss. Now, that is a little way short of some of the excitement we saw when we got the US banking numbers here. But it could have been a whole lot worse. And that's the interesting question for the markets today, that these numbers at a net level are better than the expectation. Okay, it was an 11% drop at the net number, but we were looking for something just under a billion dollars, and the bank has actually given us something in the 1.2 billion arena. And of course, we've got a uh, a pre-tax uh, number here of 1.58 billion. The um, net new money in nine billion. The market will be comforted to see that money is still coming into the wealth management uh, and the the money management business. So 2.59 uh, trillion currently invested and under management here. And the cost-income ratio at 75.8%, not challenging. But of course, everywhere we look here, we've got to just be aware of the impact that we're seeing from coronavirus on both the retail and the corporate business. And when you break down the return on capital for CT1, as everybody now gives it these days, 13.2% is a long way short of the 16% that they delivered on the year-ago period question marks about the dividend and about buybacks going forward. But Sergio Motti, of course, the uh, head of the business, trying to put um, a, a reasonable spin on this, saying we continue to face a challenging environment that they are trying to adapt to at this stage. So like all of these banks, Steve, that run a range of operations, and obviously you've got retail corporate, you've got wealth management here, and you've got the IB business, where there's been a pickup in trading activity around the markets, clearly UBS has benefited, but ultimately they are unable to dodge that bullet of the slowdown in activity around retail and corporate. All right, we're going to leave it there, Jeff. Excellent. Um, We're going to chat, of course, throughout the show. Plenty of interviews, and I know you've got a lot of work to do uh, with our interview with the uh, UBS CEO, Sergio Motti. Um, Jeff's going to go off and do that one, and we'll bring it to you bang on 800 CET. Meanwhile, top headline, European leaders have finally struck a deal on a 750 billion euro recovery package after a contentious summit that lasted nearly five days. 
The historic stimulus plan was secured, though, through key concessions, but is being hailed by leaders as a sign of the union's continued viability. Sylvia joins us with more. So break it down. What are the most interesting bits for us, Sylvia? Right. If you look at the details, Steve, the first thing to notice is really that the size of grants of this recovery fund was significantly cut from an initial proposal from when the leaders arrived in Brussels on Friday morning. Back then, the proposal said that out of the 750, 500 billion should be given in the form of grants, but that has been reduced to 390. And so that means that the component of loans of this recovery fund will be 360 billion euros. Now, this money will have to be repaid by 2050. And in order to essentially have a, um, for the other countries to check how this money will be invested, every single government will have to put together the so-called reform and recovery plan, which will essentially outline where they will be investing these funds going forward. But this is being described as a historic moment for Europe. Those were the words from the French president, Emmanuel Macron. And the reality is that irrespective of the details of this deal, the European Commission will be tasked to tap the markets and raise up to 750 billion euros and this has never happened before at the EU level. And in this regard, I would like to show you some remarks from Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, just moments ago, describing this as a pivotal moment for the EU. I believe this agreement will be seen as a pivotal moment in Europe's journey. But it will also launch us into the future. In fact, it's the first time the first time in European history that our budget will be clearly linked to our climate objectives. The first time, the first time that the respect for rule of law is a decisive criteria for budget spending. And the first time, the first time that you are jointly reinforcing our economies against a crisis. So when it comes to the climate um, target that Charles Michel was just mentioning there, the deal states that uh, 30% of the total amount of investments that will be made in the EU over the coming years will have to take this into consideration. But the, we cannot forget as well that this deal still needs to be approved by the European Parliament and the other national parliaments. And the president of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, reminded us of that just moments ago. Europe as a whole has now a big chance to come out stronger from the crisis. Today we've taken a historic step we can be all proud of. But another important step remains ahead of us. First and foremost, we now have to work with the European Parliament to secure agreement. We have a lot of work ahead of us, but tonight is a big step forward towards recovery. There are still some steps that need to be taken before this recovery fund and the next EU budget are actually implemented. The money is not going to start um, to be distributed until January of 2021. Um, but the reality is that, that the leaders met for the first time in Brussels since the pandemic started. Their meeting did was one of the longest summits 
ever in the European uh, history. And in the end, they did manage to reach a breakthrough among the European governments. And so the expectation is that irrespective of the steps that need to be taken over the coming months, this deal will be implemented starting in January. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. Very interesting. I'm not trying to find cracks where there aren't any, but uh, listening to Sean Michel, he said it's the first time. Well, Ruta is saying it's a one-off rather than the first of many. Uh, interesting commentary there from the Dutch, of course, uh, taking on the traditional UK position of being the, uh, um, the aggravator, perhaps. European Union is not a transfer union as recovery fund is a one-off. I think that's fascinating. Again, I'm not trying to find cracks where they're not there, but one saying it's the first time, another is saying it's a one-off. Right, US markets last night. There's only one market you really need to look at here, and it's the Nasdaq. Quite extraordinary rotation, not on a weekly basis, not on a monthly basis. We're seeing aggressive rotation on a daily basis. And I can assure you, uh, the down days of Amazon just got blown away yesterday because what we saw was energy uh, down 1.7%, consumer discretionary, of which uh, Amazon is the lead stock, up 3.1%. So 5% turnaround. Let's show Amazon here as well. Jim Cramer. Should I give you a Jim Cramer tweet from 8.20 last night? He says... Um, moves like this we are seeing are insane. And, um, and I wouldn't use the same language, mental health issues aside, but he's saying these moves are insane. Microsoft and Tesla uh, and Amazon, these moves are truly insane and unlike anything I've ever seen before as well. That's Jim Cramer talking. You should listen to him because these are mad moves as well. We just saw Amazon move up uh, 7.9%. Hundreds of billions of dollars went back into the technology stocks yesterday. Uh, Goldman Sachs put their price target up on this one to 3800 bucks. 3,800 bucks, and that's from their previous 3,000, which implied at the time of writing a 28% upside. Just talking about e-commerce and where it could go next as well. So these moves, quite extraordinary. The amount of money, how much do you reckon Amazon has gone up this year uh, in terms of its valuation? I've got the number here somewhere. Here we go, I've got it. What do you reckon? Yeah, $561 billion. One stock has gone up by that amount. It's not what its market cap is, that's what it's gone up by. Right, quick look at the Asian markets. Uh, here we are, uh, pretty bullish across the board. Shanghai Composite, interestingly, is the flattest of those indices. Uh, ASX 200, 2.3% higher. I'm just reading a bit of copy overnight, talking about the voracious demand of Chinese uh, producers and manufacturers for Australian products. That was in the Financial Times. Uh, Hang Seng up 1.8%. Nikkei, eight tenths of 1% higher. Right, opening calls for European indices look like this. Modest gain. I guess there was an anticipation yesterday that we were going to get this deal. Otherwise, I think you'd see bigger numbers across the board. Interesting disparity again yesterday. I'll just do this one quickly. The FTSE yesterday, big underperformer, down a half of 1%. The DAX was up 1%. Again, vicious rotation. Although I will note, just as a, as a caveat for that, the pound is trading near its recent highs with a 126 handle again, as opposed to the previous 125. We have so much in this show, including we're going to speak to a range of CEOs, uh, including Hock and Sunderson after the break. Plus later, uh, Russia's finance minister responds to claims his country's uh, attempt to hack vaccine research, telling CNBC no hackers work for his government. Uh, we'll have more from that exclusive interview with Anton Siluanov later in the show. And coming up, we are going to speak, uh, as I was just about to read, uh, to a range of CEOs, including the likes of the heads of UBS, Mr. Amotti, Abaz Narasimhan uh, over at Novartis, uh, Jules Andrier over at Givaudan, and next up, Hocken Sunderson, the CEO of Volvo Cars. Uh, as the car maker says, it expects a second half recovery in demand, that first on interview after the break.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back. Volvo Cars has reported a 20.8% fall in first half global sales and an operating loss of 989 million Swedish krona as the automaker was hit by a slump in demand in Europe. But the company said it expects the business to recover in the second half, thanks in part to a return to growth in key Chinese markets. Delighted to welcome back to Scorebox Hocken Sunnison, who is the CEO of Volvo Cars. Hocken, always a pleasure, sir. Uh, just lay out the land yeah. for us. Well, how are things looking on a global basis? I guess it's very hard to make too much ground while we still have such devastating increases in COVID cases. Yeah, it's of course very difficult to forecast. But if you look into what is really happening out on the market, is uh, the market is recovering. Uh, good and faster really than I expected some months ago. And it started in China, of course. US were back in in May, very close to figures to last year. And, and then in June, also Europe were back very close uh, to, to where we were a year ago. So basically, we closed the first six months um, flat with the last year. I think it was a couple of percent lower. And in July, this continues. It looks like we have a strong recovery. In July, we are even slightly globally a bit above last year's number. So, so we, we see a strong recovery. But of course, as you say, very difficult to predict any second wave pandemic effects. But uh, we just have to wait and see. Yeah, I suppose the second wave, second round effects of this pandemic and job losses globally are a grave concern for all kinds of bodies. The OECD has put out some numbers, the IMF and others are very concerned. The last thing I could think about buying, as much as I love Volvo cars, and you know that, the last thing I could think about buying is buying a new car at this moment if I was worried about my employment situation. That's going to be a barrier, isn't it? Yes, but especially in Europe, we have a very good support from uh, from governmental systems to uh, avoid layoffs. So, I mean, both in our Belgium factory and in our Swedish factory, we have really kept our people uh, on board, which uh, really was good because now, of course, the production is back here since some weeks on, on a full uh, level. So we really prospered from those support systems, which um, avoided uh, layoffs. So that was really good, of course. Um, quick question. Well, I guess I'm asking a silly question. Is anyone buying any diesels anymore? Are you still selling any diesels or is it all about the recharge, all about the hybrids now? Yeah, it, it's a clear trend. But of course, we still sell diesels uh, less and less. And now it's petrol hybrids and uh, especially the electrified hybrids we sell. Uh, in the first six months, it was 14 percent, which is uh, a very high share. So. Uh, and especially in Europe, it's a close to a quarter of all cars sold are chargeable plug-in hybrids. And that's, of course, uh, also if you compare with our competitors, that's a very high percentage. It's about double of, of, of our competitors. So shows that we are really on track to, to make this company an electric car company. 
How profitable is it per car at the moment, Hocken, on average? Because, of course, there are concerns that putting in higher technologies, big electric mm. technologies, hybrid technologies, and actually getting a real good performance. It costs a lot of money for you, the manufacturer, the OEM, but actually you don't make a lot of money out of these cars. Ah, but it's uh, not that bad that uh, some people think, because if we look into our profitability, it's really is not influenced uh, money-wise from uh, us uh, changing over to plug-in hybrids. So the margins per cars are in money more or less the same as uh, for a corresponding car. But in, uh, in percent, it could be slightly lower. But uh, this is, of course, a bridge technology. Now we have two engines in the car. I mean, in five years' time, uh, we will sell all electric cars, and then you are back to one engine. So I think this is absolutely a, a necessary step. And uh, I think we also learned that we, we also can keep our profit levels with the selling the plug-in hybrids. Yeah, the, the problem is, Hocken, we talked about older technology, fantastic diesel technologies and, and fantastic bridge technologies. But quite frankly, people hang on to their cars. I, I can't remember the average age of a fleet in the US. I think it's around 10 or 11 years still. Uh, but people want to hang on to these cars for a very long time. They don't get rusty anymore like the 70s, like you and I remember. So people want mm. to buy an expensive car, but they want it to last a long while. So is that a hard sell, selling bridge technologies now when everyone knows it's a bridge technology? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think they're selling good. And of course, it's also related to the charging infrastructure. And I mean, it's still the people who live in locations where it's really practical to really have a car that you can drive very flexible. But uh, so we, we don't see that. I think uh, the plug-in hybrids is a very popular concept and especially on our SUVs which we are selling more and more so now in the six months 70 percent of all cars sold are SUVs and and uh, 14 percent plug-ins of those. I do find it amazing though uh, and you mentioned the SUVs and I know the range very very well dare I say I'm very familiar with the range uh, but the fact of the matter is these are very very big energy hungry cars still. Are you, are you not surprised that actually that people still want the XC90s? They still want the XC6s. Surely a smaller range of cars, more 21st century friendly, uh, would be the way forward. Yeah, I, I think so. You, you are right. I mean, we see a clear trend into smaller cars, but smaller SUVs. So I think you also see that SUVs are a very popular concept. And I think especially what is popular is a good visibility. You sit high, have an excellent visibility, easy to step in and out. But what will happen uh, when these cars get electrified? They have to have a lower air resistance to have a better range. So I think the future SUVs will be slightly different from the ones we see today. They will be more aerodynamic and have a better range. Does this sector still need some form of government incentive? I noticed the huge oscillation in new energy vehicle sales in China on a regular basis, a market you are stunningly familiar with as well. Does it need government incentive to drive sales still? Or actually, can this sector stand on its own two legs now? Uh, I think long term, we need to have sustainable concepts that can be sold on its own merits. But of course, in the first transition years, uh, governmental support for electric cars uh, would be very helpful. And even more helpful would be support to develop a charging network, because I've been driving now an electric car in the last month here. And, and you see, you really should need a bit more charging stations on the roads out in Europe. So that, that would be something very, very good if we would uh, get...
to board for that. Oh, well, then let me ask you about that. Part of this uh, new recovery package and the seven-year budget and all the other things we're getting out of Brussels at the moment as well, is there enough focus on actually physically putting in more charging stations, improving the grids, getting the supply of electric to these cars so we can have quicker charging stations? Because I know in the UK, as you well know, it's appalling at the moment. There are just not enough stations. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. And, and I haven't read really the package, but uh, I think probably it's open for discussion. But... Uh, if you ask me, I think that is an area where you really need to have support because a customer in a showroom uh, choosing between a conventional car and an electric car, I mean, he will absolutely ask, where can I charge these cars? And if uh, the infrastructure is not there, I mean, it will be difficult to convince customer to do that. I mean, especially if you live in areas where you don't have this network. So I, I fully agree that should be really focused in, uh, in the support. I think that's more important than conventional subsidies per car sold. Hockham, just final one. I've got about 30 seconds left. Um, bellicose language between the three big blocks, China, the US, and sometimes Europe dragged in as well. Do you have grave concerns about the political situation, denting growth and increasing protectionism? Uh, absolutely. I think it's a very negative development right now. I mean, we are a global company with business in the US, China and in Europe. And uh, of course, uh, tension between these three blocks, trade restrictions, that's not good for the global economy. And it's absolutely not good for Volvo cars. So I really hope that comes to and stop and, and I can see a more positive development. But right now it's negative. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.